Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Welcome back. This week we have grants, but we do not have oral arguments. The justices are on an oral argument break until after Thanksgiving, and we'll be back on Monday, November 30th for those oral arguments. They will still be holding Friday conferences, so keep an eye out for Monday orders and grants. Or if you don't have time for that, just always join us back here at SCOTUS 101, where John, Carlo, and I have kept an eye on it for you. On Monday, the court announced that it will hear a case called Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid, involving the question of whether the uncompensated appropriation of an easement that is limited in time amounts to a per se physical taking under the Fifth Amendment. That was a mouthful. No kidding. Amy, unpack that for me. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Cedar Point Nursery is a strawberry nursery, not a child care center. They're suing California over a state regulation that says agricultural growers must allow union organizers to access their property up to three hours per day, 120 days each year, and they have to do it for free. So neither the union organizers nor the government uh, is required uh, to, to have to pay for this access. Cedar Point Nursery is alleging that union organizers routinely use this law to come onto their property during work hours with bullhorns uh, to recruit employees and conduct uh, basically disruptive protests. They're arguing that as property owners, they have a right to exclude unwanted persons from their property and that the government allowing this and actually requiring it is a taking of their private property by the government under the Fifth Amendment uh, for which the government must then compensate them. The district courts, on the other hand, said this was not an unconstitutional taking, and the Ninth Circuit panel agreed. Uh, they said that the regulation isn't a per se physical taking because even though it uh, requires them to have access for a significant period of time, it isn't a 24-7 occupation, so they're not really, quote unquote, taking it. Uh, interestingly, even though the Ninth Circuit denied en banc review, um, so that's when the entire uh, Ninth Circuit gets together instead of just a panel. Eight judges from the Ninth Circuit dissented from that denial and would have had the entire Ninth Circuit review the panel's decision. Well, no oral arguments to talk about, but this seemed like a good time to introduce to you some of the pending cases that the court might agree to hear this spring. Amy and I each picked a couple from our watch list that we thought were interesting. Amy, take us away. Well, I'm cheating on this first one by not picking one case, but a group of several cases that are all basically asking the same question. So if you recall, just a couple terms ago in the Janus case, the court struck down a law allowing public sector labor unions to require non-union members to nevertheless pay union dues. Several pending petitions involved challenges where non-union members who were forced before the Janus decision to pay that money are essentially coming back to the court and saying, cool, we're very glad that we don't have to pay these dues anymore, but actually now we want our money back from all of the previous years where we did have to pay those dues. 
in all of these cases, the lower courts held that uh, what they called a good faith defense bars uh, these non-union members from getting damages uh, and restitution for these agency fees and, and membership dues in those cases. Um, essentially, the, the court's reasoning was that the unions took the money because they were relying on valid, actively good Supreme Court precedent saying that they could do this. Another case we're watching is called Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus Governor Cuomo. The issue in that case, should the court take it, is whether Governor Cuomo's shutdown order, which limits attendance at houses of worship to 10 or 25 people, but allows many secular businesses to operate without restrictions, violates the free exercise clause, and what standard of review the court should use for those claims. Now, next week, we're going to be joined by Professor Josh Blackman, who's going to unpack these issues in some detail and explain how the Chief Justice's concurrence in an earlier case, South Bay Pentecostal, where a church asked for emergency relief from California's shutdown order, has unleashed something of a mess in the lower courts. As a preview for that discussion, though, I'll note that the Chief's opinion in South Bay should have had no precedential weight at all. It's not a majority opinion. It's not a merits case. It's nothing more than one justice's concurring opinion in an order denying emergency relief. Nevertheless, it has been cited in 114 cases already just since May, covering issues from free speech to the Second Amendment, criminal procedure, abortion cases, even voting rights. I cannot think of another time, maybe ever, that an opinion from the court's shadow docket, that is emergency orders and summary dispositions, has ever had such an impact. So my second petition to watch is Box v. Henderson, which I think is a fascinating look into the ongoing legal fallout from the court's Obergefell decision. The question in this petition is whether a state consistent with the 14th Amendment and Equal Protection Clause may adopt a biology-based birth certificate system that includes a rebuttable presumption that a birth mother's husband, but not wife in a same-sex marriage, is the child's biological parent. So for some legal context for those who have forgotten, in Pavan v. Smith in 2017, the court struck down a sort of similar law that placed the name of a husband on the birth certificate, even if the child was conceived by sperm donor, but didn't do the same thing for a wife in a same-sex married couple. Uh, said in that case that the birth certificate system there was about more than just genetics for opposite sex couples, because clearly everyone knows in, the, in those instances, the biological father is not the husband. And so it needed to treat same-sex married couples in the same way, even when everyone knows that the married wife is not the biological husband. But now we have this case in Box v. Henderson, which challenges a law in Indiana that presumes the married husband is the father unless there is evidence to the contrary. Um, so in cases like sperm donation, et cetera, where it's, it's very, very clear that the husband is not the biological father. And you would think that in the case of a same-sex couple, it is also easily rebutted that the wife is not, in fact, the biological father of the child. But the lower court nevertheless held that the law was unconstitutional for not presuming this. Um, so again, just a little bit more of that ongoing legal fallout uh, and a very interesting uh, question playing off of Pavan. So uh, another one to keep your eye on as we go forward. That's it for updates. This week, we're joined by professor and former judge Paul Cassell. 
Professor Cassell, as he prefers to be called, is the Ronald N. Boyce Presidential Professor of Criminal Law and University Distinguished Professor of Law at the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah. He is one of, if not the, foremost expert in victims' rights. He is a double graduate of Stanford, where, in law school, he served as the president of the Law Review. After law school, he clerked for then-Judge Antonin Scalia on the D.C. Circuit and Chief Justice Warren Burger. After his clerkships, he worked at the DOJ and then as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia. From there, he began his academic career, also at the University of Utah, and after spending 10 years there, was nominated by George W. Bush to the District Court for the District of Utah. He served on the bench for five years and then returned to academia at the University of Utah, where he has since continued his work and advocacy in the field of victims' rights. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Now, Professor, I'd love to start out, uh, you know, the first question, what got you into the legal career? Well, when I was growing up, I was always interested in public policy and watching Congress debate issues and generally uh, trying to understand how to make the world a, a better place. And so I went into uh, college and I did a lot of debating during college, debating public policy issues. I also majored in economics, which uh, surprisingly, I guess, for some folks, uh, I found very interesting because economics is all about trade-offs. If you're trying to maximize one thing, you often end up minimizing another thing. And so there are trade-offs that have to be considered whenever we have public policy issues. And that sort of led me into thinking about going to law school. Law school, of course, involves becoming a lawyer and having the potential to move into public policy positions and uh, trying to uh, work to make the, the world a better place. So that's, uh, that's how I uh, ended up uh, going to law school. And after law school, you clerked first for then Judge Antonin Scalia and then for Chief Justice Warren Burger. What were those experiences like? Well, obviously, uh, I was very, very fortunate uh, to have those two wonderful opportunities right off the bat after I graduated from law school. Uh, Judge Scalia really wasn't uh, on the radar uh, back then. Uh, he was on the D.C. Circuit, of course, a very high-profile court, but not very many people had heard of him at the time I was applying for my uh, position. I was applying uh, back in 1983 when he had just uh, just taken the bench, and uh, I was uh, fortunate. Uh, he had clerking for him at the time. Uh, Lee Lieberman, uh, uh, now Lee Lieberman Otis, uh, was one of his law clerks there, and I think she helped to uh, she's been very active, of course, with the Federalist Society uh, 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 since then, and I think she helped to, to bring my resume to the judge's attention, and then I had a chance to to uh, take that position and work for him. Uh, but that was a very exciting time uh, to, to work for Judge Scalia. And then uh, I was very fortunate uh, to have him mentoring me and, and encouraging me uh, as a young lawyer at that point. Uh, I was applying uh, to clerk uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, I'd interviewed with several justices, but had not uh, been successful in getting a, a clerkship. And so, uh, fortunately, uh, Judge Scalia uh, had had a previous uh, acquaintance with uh, Michael Ludig, who later, of course, went on to serve with great distinction on the Fourth Circuit. And uh, Judge Scalia uh, arranged a uh, 
a, uh, a meeting between me and, and Michael Ludig in uh, uh, Restaurante AV, one of the Italian restaurants there in, in D.C. And, and uh, that created an acquaintance between me and, and Michael Ludig, who was then uh, clerking for Chief Justice Berger. And uh, Mike Ludig was able to then introduce me to Chief Justice Berger. And that's how I got my uh, clerkship there. I was able to, to convince uh, Chief Justice Berger to, to bring me on as a law clerk for a year. And of course, that is... Uh, a tremendous opportunity one year out of law school to be working at the United States Supreme Court for the for the Chief Justice was just a, a tremendous opportunity. It was interesting. Chief Justice Berger at that point had been on the court for many, many years. And uh, one of the things that was interesting about that particular term, uh, this was uh, OT 85, the last uh, year uh, that Chief Justice um, Berger was was on the court. Um, it was about the time that the bicentennial of the Constitution was coming up, and Chief Justice Berger, of course, was working very diligently on the cases that were in front of the court that that term. But he, his particular passion that year was the bicentennial of the U.S. Constitution and working to expose uh, citizens all over the country to the Constitution and and how it worked and to just. Uh, generally create more literacy about constitutional uh, law and constitutional rights. So he was doing such things as I think he negotiated that year with uh, with Kellogg's to uh, have uh, small copies of the U.S. Constitution put in uh, boxes of cornflakes and things like that. And he was very proud of... Uh, of those kinds of efforts uh, that he felt, you know, beyond simply deciding the, the cases, which obviously were extremely important in the U.S. Supreme Court, but he felt like he was uh, doing a, a great uh, deal of service to be uh, uh, passing along constitutional knowledge in that way. And at the, at the, uh, it was kind of interesting uh, that I guess one, just one small story about uh, uh, working for Chief Justice Berger, uh, Towards the end of the term, uh, the chief called me into his office and said, uh, Paul, you're doing a wonderful job this year. Would you like to stay on for another year working for me? And uh, of course, uh, when you have someone offer you an opportunity like that, uh, you, you don't say no. And I was pleased to, to say, sure, chief, I will be glad to stay on another year. And uh, I felt uh, very accomplished uh, the having impressed the chief justice with my work well well come to find out i think it was in around june of that year or, or maybe july as the as the term was wrapping up um chief justice Berger uh, went to uh, the president uh, president uh, reagan and and uh, told him that uh, he was uh, retiring that summer and uh, uh, the chief justice then came back and reported to me and, and some of my colleagues who were also uh, uh, part of the cover story, I think it's fair to say, that uh, the chief had hired law clerks for the next year so he wouldn't be resigning. And the chief was, I mean, the chief explained to us the circumstances, uh, even though he trusted us very much, uh, he couldn't give us the information about his plans because then we wouldn't be looking for uh, you know, different positions, or, or we might be looking for positions, different things like that, that might uh, 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 tip off what was happening. And he felt like the president of the United States uh, should be the first one to learn of a uh, retirement on the Supreme Court. And therefore, it was necessary for him to, to make sure that he took steps that uh, allowed President Reagan to be the first one uh, in the world to find out that information and, and to move forward, of course, uh, with the replacement. So, uh, um, that was uh, that was uh, a wonderful year working uh, for Chief Justice Berger.
Do you have any favorite uh, or really memorable personal memories of the two judges? Of course, yeah, they were they were uh, wonderful to work for uh, in their each in their own uh, particular ways. Uh, uh, Judge Scalia, uh, his writing style was uh, just extraordinary, and uh, he uh, the opportunity to see someone you know crafting legal masterpieces on a day-to-day basis was something I'll never forget. Uh, probably the one, the lesson that in, in, about being a lawyer uh, and, and about being a, a person that, that most stands out for me is in connection with a, a case that uh, Judge Scalia had come before him uh, while I was there in, in, uh, in 84, 85. The case involved uh, regulations regarding, of all things, sausages. And uh, so the you know the I think the sausage maker was challenging the, the I can't recall exactly who had jurisdiction over the sausages but but somebody had imposed some onerous restrictions that was that, that were making it difficult for the sausage manufacturer to to move forward uh, you know with manufacturing sausages and so it was a challenge under the Administrative Procedures Act or some other uh, challenge under administrative law. And so Judge Scalia came up with what is arguably the greatest opening sentence, I think, in any judicial opinion. And it was something along the lines of, this case presents us with the opportunity to test both halves of Bismarck's aphorism that the only thing the public should not see in in the making are laws and sausages. And it was, you know, because we were, we were forced, of course, to look at uh, the regulations of sausage making. Well, but uh, Scalia, just Judge Scalia had come up with that line. And, you know, and then I can't recall whether I was working on the opinion or, or my colleagues, uh, my other co-clerks were working uh, on it. Uh, but we were all working away and um, we all chimed in over the next month, uh, you know, with all these sausage jokes, uh, the... Uh, the appellant's argument is stuffed with uh, this and that, or the link in the reasoning is da 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 da. You know, and we had we felt very proud of ourselves because we had come up with all of these very we thought clever little plays on words involving sausages uh, as twenty-five-year-old lawyers, and so uh, you know the the floppy disk went back uh, to Judge Scalia with the draft, and he came out right out very quickly, and. Uh, I don't know that he was so much angry as maybe disappointed because he came out and he said, and he got, he brought all of us together. He said, look, uh, look, clerks, you, you need to understand that this case involves uh, someone's business, uh, his livelihood, uh, his future. Uh, and it's one thing to sort of set the stage with a, uh, 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 an aphorism or something like that, that, that shows you're taking the case seriously, but it's another thing to start to make uh, light of the, the legal issues involved or the, or the seriousness of the case. And so he had us uh, immediately go back through and remove all of those references and, and to, to give the case. I think it's, you know, we all look back as law clerks in retrospect and give the case the sort of dignity and attention and, and uh, uh, the sort of tone to the decision that it that it deserved. And so that was, I think, a, a real lesson for us uh, that, you know, when you're when you're a law student or, a law, uh, you know, or maybe a, a legal academic, you tend to to forget the sort of human side of these cases and how pe- real people and their their futures are involved. And, and Judge Scalia, uh, as that case made clear, never, uh, never overlooked that. So that was uh, my most I think my most memorable lesson that I learned from from Judge Scalia. 
I'm trying to think. Chief Justice Berger, uh, the, the thing I'll always remember about him is uh, there was a lot of work that needed to get done in the uh, Supreme Court, obviously, not just the opinions. Reviewing the uh, cert petitions that came before the court and uh, many other things that uh, we worked on as law clerks. So we worked more than five days a week. So every Saturday for lunch, uh, the chief would uh, have us into his office and he, he would be working as well on Saturdays. And he had this crock pot what frankly, none of us were never entirely sure what was in it, but he would have a different soup for us every Saturday of beans or meat or something. I don't know. We were always never entirely sure what the recipes were, but he would then uh, bring us all in and we would uh, have that soup together and try to figure out uh, uh, what kinds of, uh, what, you know, what issues we needed to work on. I think one thing that people didn't appreciate quite so much about Chief Justice Berger uh, at the time and even in retrospect is I think how effective he was. People were sometimes disappointed, uh, uh, particularly conservatives, that Chief Justice Berger uh, was not more successful in, in, uh, in getting a majority for some of the some of his opinions. Um, but I think he was uh, very, uh, very capable in, in talking to other uh, justices on the court and, and uh, was actively engaged in trying to persuade some of the other justices, uh, at least the year that we were there. And uh, and I think the result was, uh, uh, I think Chief Justice Berger, sometimes people uh, underappreciate him. His writing style was not the same, for example, as Judge Scalia, former academic. Um, and we talked to him about that one time. Uh, you know, chief uh, was what he asked us to call him. So, chief, you know, how, how come you don't have more footnotes here? Or chief, you're not you're not citing these big law review articles on this particular topic. And what he told us, I think, was very interesting. He said, "Well, you need to understand who's going to be um, who's going to be reading these opinions. Uh, these opinions are going to be be uh, read by uh, uh, practicing attorneys. Uh, they're very busy. They have to charge their clients by the hour." And so if you start making these opinions longer and longer and covering, you know, all sorts of things that may or may not come up in the particular case, then you're going to only increase the amount of time that the attorneys have to spend unpacking these decisions. And we should write shorter, crisp decisions that resolve the issue and that uh, uh, can be easily applied by practicing attorneys and the, and the clients that they're serving. And so I think he had a slightly different view of the audience of U.S. Supreme Court opinions than perhaps uh, Judge Scalia did, and, and that's reflected in the uh, the writing style that he had. So after you finished your clerkships, you went on to work for the DOJ. What did you do there? I have mentioned previously that I uh, worked as a law clerk. I, I sort of took the desk of Lee Otis, and she had gone on to work for the Deputy Attorney General in the U.S. Department of Justice, and she was in the process, I think, if I recall correctly, of of leaving that job and moving on to a different job in Washington. And so uh, I had the opportunity to work for the Deputy Attorney General in the U.S. Department of Justice. That was uh, Arnie Burns, uh, Arnold Burns, uh, who worked for Attorney General Meese. So uh, I went there and, and spent two years working in the Justice Department in a policy position, worked on a lot of very interesting uh, criminal justice issues, which uh, it was one of the ways that I started to become interested in uh, criminal justice, which is the area that I that I focus on uh, focus on now. Uh, for example, one of the things I was charged with doing was uh, the Office of Legal Policy at the Justice Department 
have been uh, putting together a series of policy papers on legal issues that should be uh, advanced in the courts. And, and one of the policy papers dealt with uh, Miranda versus Arizona and the fact that there was a uh, federal statute that had been passed uh, to overrule Miranda. And uh, so uh, they were looking for test cases to, to have the courts consider whether that statute cut back on some of the protections that uh, Miranda was extending to those who were being uh, in, uh, questioned by police officers. And so I was responsible for finding uh, the test case to raise that issue uh, and monitoring uh, appeal memos that were coming through the Justice Department uh, and that, uh, that sort of thing. And what led you from working the DOJ to uh, academia? So uh, after I worked uh, in the deputy's office for two years, I went out to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Virginia. I always felt that if I was going to go into academia, which I started to have some interest in as, as I was moving through law school and, and my clerkships, that I should be a real world lawyer, that I didn't want to be one of uh, the academics who, uh, quote, didn't know how to find their way to the courthouse, close quote, or something like that. I wanted to be someone who had actually done real cases and uh, had uh, real experience, uh, had the sort of full uh, toolkit to be a lawyer. And so uh, I'd always wanted to be a prosecutor. And I went to the Eastern District of Virginia, D.C. suburbs, and worked uh, for four years there in the Eastern District of Virginia. I was in a general criminal section prosecuting gun running and uh, uh, some homicides and uh, just a variety of different cases in the general crimes unit. And uh, after I'd done that for a few years, uh, had an opportunity to uh, uh, then apply to, to move into academia. It was around that time that I met uh, um, met my wife. Uh, she'd been working in the in the Federalist Society. I think she was the after Gene Meyer was the second person who was hired there. And so uh, we were looking to move uh, back west. We were both from the west. And I interviewed and uh, uh, University of Utah had an opening in criminal law. Uh, it's uh, located in, I think, one of the great cities of the world, Salt Lake City, Utah, very close to the mountains and skiing and hiking. And so uh, uh, I took that uh, position and uh, moved out to uh, the University of Utah to teach law in uh, 1992. And and my goal was to try to, as I as I mentioned uh, a bit earlier, to try to make a difference, to try to come up with uh, ways of, of changing policy and uh, following up on that uh, project that I mentioned uh, about trying to challenge Miranda. I, I began writing law review articles on what I thought were the harmful effects of the Miranda decision. Uh, regarding uh, law enforcement, how they made it difficult for law enforcement officers to question some suspects. And uh, in addition to that, uh, I started litigating. I started uh, raising as an amicus uh, uh, the issue of whether 18 U.S.C. 3501 overruled uh, uh, Miranda. And so I started raising that issue out here in Utah and federal district court and a few other places. And Usually when I'd file that brief, what I'd hear from the judges, well, uh, they would say something along the lines of not quite this bluntly, but I think this is what they were thinking. Well, Professor, that's a really uh, interesting academic argument, but we have a real case to decide here. We're going to decide it under Miranda. We're not going to look at the statute. And so I continued uh, uh, working on that issue. I kept in touch with some of my friends uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Virginia. And uh, there was a case that went in front of the Fourth Circuit uh, U.S. versus Dickerson, and uh, that involved a situation where uh, 
the district judge had found that the FBI had obtained a confession in a violation of Miranda and threw out the bank robber's confession, even though it was clearly voluntary, clearly uh, accurate. And so I raised that in front of the Fourth Circuit as an amicus brief, and they actually gave me five minutes to come out and argue it in the Fourth Circuit as a law professor. And I went out there and, gosh, in five minutes, I made a lot of arguments because I'd been waiting for a decade to make this point. Uh, like one of the, the press reports said, well, that professor had obviously been waiting for his opportunity because he didn't stop once he got rolling. <laughs> and I convinced the Fourth Circuit in the U.S. versus Dickerson that uh, um, Miranda had been overruled by federal statute. And so they re released a decision to that effect. Uh, Mr. Dickerson, the bank robber, obviously appealed. And at that point, very interestingly, uh, and I think uh, quite inappropriately, the United States Department of Justice uh, then uh, headed uh, by uh, President Clinton and, and his appointees, declined to defend the constitutionality of that statute, even though uh, it's quite clear that the Justice Department has an obligation to defend a federal statute as constitutional whenever reasonable arguments can be made on its behalf. So the U.S. Supreme Court granted cert in Dickerson. Um, they uh, had a situation where both Dickerson, the bank robber, and the United States Department of Justice were on the same side of the case at that point, arguing the statute was unconstitutional. And so they uh, they appointed me to defend the statute. So I got to argue before the Supreme Court in the Dickerson case and uh, ultimately uh, uh, ended up losing seven to two, of course. Uh, most people are aware that uh, Dickerson came out the wrong way, but I always felt like that was fighting the good fight and, and trying to make a difference and trying to create um, uh, some flexibility in the Miranda rule so that law enforcement officers could obtain and use uh, in court uh, voluntary confessions. So after that career as uh, litigating in a very active status, you were then appointed to the federal bench in 2002 by President George W. Bush. Tell me, what was that transition like? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, you know, I, I felt like I had a wonderful job as an academic out at the University of Utah. But of course, as a lawyer, you always uh, uh, think about uh, working a, as a judge. Uh, and uh, I was fortunate to be in Utah where I developed a, a connection with Senator Orrin Hatch, uh, who was uh, uh, obviously the chair of the, of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And uh, I'd worked uh, frequently with him on criminal justice issues, and there was a vacancy that was open uh, following the 2000 election. And so uh, I went to Senator Hatch and ex expressed my interest. I thought I could make a difference uh, working as a judge. And uh, Senator Hatch was uh, the gatekeeper to getting uh, an appointment uh, to the federal bench here in Utah. And I think it's fair to say was assembling a, a very uh, uh, well-regarded group of judges that uh, were working working uh, in Utah and working, for example, on the 10th Circuit. My colleague at the University of Utah at the time, Michael McConnell, was also uh, put up for the, the 10th Circuit in that uh, early days. Now, in 2004, uh, you wrote an opinion, which I believe was the first of its kind, where you s held that the sentencing guidelines were unconstitutional. And you also wrote an opinion uh, decrying a 55-year mandatory minimum sentence that you were required to impose on a marijuana dealer. Uh, what led you to those conclusions? So uh, obviously the, the conclusions were, were based on the, the law that was in front of me. Each, each of those two cases uh, uh, was uh, very interesting in its own right. Croxford was uh, an interesting case. I had been traveling 
And uh, Croxford, as I recall, was handed, uh, uh, there was a predecessor decision, United States versus uh, Blakely, that, that struck down the, the sentencing guidelines in the state of Washington. And, and if I recall correctly, that was handed down on a Thursday. And, and I was out of the office and, and, I, and I'd gotten back, I think, on either Friday or Saturday. And I, and I read uh, that uh, Blakely decision that said the uh, sentencing guidelines in the state of Washington were unconstitutional. And I looked at it and thought, oh, my goodness, the logical implications of this are that the federal sentencing guidelines are unconstitutional as well. There was a, a footnote in Blakely that said, look, we don't reach the, any issue of the federal sentencing guidelines. But it was clear as, as could be that that was going to be the next step. Well, on Monday, I had a, a very significant uh, uh, case in which the guidelines were going to be a, a central part. Uh, that was U.S. versus Croxford. Croxford, uh, if I recall correctly, had been convicted of, of uh, some kind of a sexual molestation crime uh, involving a young child who was anticipated to actually come into the courtroom and testify on Monday. So the issue then came up of, well what should I do? Should I delay the sentencing on Monday to, to try to sort through all those issues? But that would have involved having a child victim uh, continue to have great uncertainty about whether the case was going to be wrapped up. So I called my law clerks, I believe, on Saturday and said, look, we need to put together an opinion tomorrow on Sunday to hand out on Monday uh, that finds that the federal sentencing guidelines are unconstitutional because that's clearly the import of this case, you know, the Blakely case from the state of Washington. And so we worked hard on, on that Sunday. Um, some of my law clerks typically did not work on Sunday, but they, uh, their religious beliefs allowed them to do so in situations of, of exigency. And so we all got together on that Sunday uh, to put together uh, a, uh, an opinion. And then we released it on Monday. I think, I, the, I think the joke is that the Federal Defender's Office in Salt Lake City heard what was going to happen in advance because I had contacted some of the lawyers to give them a heads up. So they all came to watch. Uh, the, the sentencing, and then they said they went back to their office and they all burned their federal sentencing guideline manuals <laughs> because they declared the uh, federal sentencing guidelines to be uh, un unconstitutional. I did that, as I recall, I, I bifurcated the, the hearing at, at 1 p.m. or something along those lines. I had all the attorneys in and we, the, they argued over whether or not the guidelines were unconstitutional. And then I, 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 I shared with them my draft decision that I had written to see if I had been overlooking anything. The government uh, objected, but uh, I think their arguments were not uh, not persuasive. So, uh, at you know one thirty or one forty five, I declared the federal sentencing guidelines unconstitutional. But then at two o'clock, when everybody had left, so that the courtroom was was not crowded, we turned to the sentencing of Mr. Croxford, and at that point, we were able to have uh, the victim uh, in the case uh, provide a victim impact statement without all of the uh, other uh, people being being there. And I was, uh, one of the things I remember in the Croxford cases is, is I, I had been uh, representing crime victims in some earlier cases in state court. And I'd always remembered there was a state court judge who in a sentencing involving child molestation had, had uh, told the victim in that case that you didn't do anything wrong. It was your father or the abuser, whoever it was that has done something wrong here. You need to always remember that. And he'd looked directly at the victim when, when he'd said that. And I had had an opportunity to work with that victim, and she said that that was a, a life-changing moment in her life because uh, that was for the first time, uh, that became the first time when she realized that what the, the, the sexual abuse that, it, that had been inflicted on her had nothing to do with her and everything to do with the perpetrator. 
And she'd heard that from an authority figure, a judge elevated above the room and wearing a robe and so forth. And that had been the moment in, in her life when she was able to, uh, to take control of her life and move forward. So I gave the same kind of speech uh, in the Croxford case at two o'clock when I sentenced Mr. Croxford. Uh, I, didn't, I don't recall what sentence he got, but that wasn't for me the, the important moment in the hearing. The important moment in the hearing was when I, I told him uh, that uh, everything he had done was wrong. And I, and I looked at the victim and told her that nothing she had done was wrong. And we were able to have that hearing without, as I say, without delay, even though there were these other complicated issues swirling around. So that was one of that was in I think uh, June of 2004. Later that year, I had this another case. Weldon Angelos, who was a low-level marijuana dealer, and under the federal mandatory minimums at the time, I was required to sentence him to 55 years, and I, I, that just did not seem right to me um, because I had sentenced literally uh, murderers to less time than 55 years, rapists and and others. So uh, um, I ended up writing a very lengthy opinion, and I think it got. Uh, a lot of attention precisely because I, I made those points. I put together a table that showed Angelos getting a 55-year sentence, and I showed how many years he would have gotten if he had, uh, if he'd, I think if he'd been an aircraft hijacker or aircraft terrorist and blown up an aircraft, he would have gotten 25 years or something. If he was a rapist of a child, he would have gotten 15 years. And if he was the rapist of, of an adult victim, he would have gotten eight years or something. I had, I had worked out the math very carefully, and it just showed how absurd these mandatory minimum sentences were. And so I released that decision, and that became... I think it's fair to say kind of a rallying cry or, uh, or a clear example of how mandatory minimum sentences uh, were unfair. And, and I thought, frankly, brought the federal criminal justice system into disrepute because uh, uh, you can't really justify a system that's imposing those kinds of lengthy sentences. And recently, of course, uh, uh, the First Step Act uh, uh, supported by a, a whole host of, of organizations, including, I believe, the the Heritage Foundation, if I'm not mistaken, and others uh, uh, have changed some of those mandatory minimum sentences. And, and uh, I feel like my uh, role in highlighting uh, the injustice it was producing, at least one case in front of me, uh, ultimately played a, played a role in those reforms. Now, in 2007, you resigned from the bench to return to academia. What made you decide to step down after only five years? Well, I, I would. I was working very hard on the cases, and you know, as we've talked about, I had a couple of cases that I think were were, were making a, a difference in the world and, and were influencing the law. But I was in a, a trial court position, where um, obviously the decisions that I was handing out were not precedential, even though they were extremely important to the parties who were in front of me. I, t I took my obligation to to resolve those cases uh, fairly and and uh, uh, expeditiously, very very seriously. But I began to think that perhaps there were others who could step into my role as a federal district court judge and do the job as, as well as I was doing it, perhaps even better. And on the other hand, I felt like I had unique skills and abilities regarding crime victims' rights and more broadly criminal justice reform, where I might be able to make more of a difference if I went back to academia. And so at that point, uh, I uh, decided that I did want to go back to academia. I realized that uh, probably was my true calling. And so I had the most uh, difficult conversation I've ever had in my life, which was to go to uh, Senator Hatch and explain to him that even though he had stuck his neck out for me and, and even though I wasn't a, a practicing lawyer, I was an academic, he'd pushed for me to be on the federal bench. I was now uh, asking him to, to uh, or uh, let me uh, 
go back to, to academia. I don't know if that let me is the exact right way to phrase it, but Senator Hatch, uh, as people who have met him and worked with him know, it was very, very gracious and said, Paul, you should follow your passions and, and do whatever you want to do. We'll, we'll sort out you know, the details of, of your position and, and others later, but you need to do what you think is, is best with your life. And so I've always been very appreciative to Senator Hatch, not only for putting me on the bench to begin with, but uh, later for allowing me to, to pursue my interests in, in supporting crime victims' rights and more broadly criminal justice reform. So that's uh, that's when I, I stepped down and uh, returned to law teaching at the University of Utah. What are some of the things you've done in the area of victims' rights? Well, since then, uh, I've worked on, on probably my two most uh, noteworthy cases are First, a case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Paroline versus United States. Uh, that was a case that involved a, a young woman I'll refer to as Amy, and she was the victim of child pornography crime. She was uh, raped by her uncle when she was very young. Uh, videos were taken of that crime, and they were distributed all over the Internet. She's one of the most widely dis, uh, disseminated child pornography uh, series in, in the world. And that's created all sorts of psychological trauma. It's uh, made it very difficult for her to, to gain employment opportunities because she has difficulty interacting with the public as, as a result of the distribution of, of all those images. And so she has been making restitution claims all over uh, the country in, in literally hundreds of criminal cases. And the issue that came up, she was seeking $3 million, uh, give or take, in, in economic and other kinds of damages. And uh, she was entitled, I think it's fair to say, to get uh, that kind of uh, recovery under the federal restitution statutes. But the question came up, well, who pays that, that amount? Is it paid by any one defendant or is it paid by literally thousands and thousands of defendants scattered all over the United States, each of whom have been uh, involved in the distribution and, and, and viewing of her images. So that case, uh, I litigated it all over along with my friend James Marsh, an attorney in New York. And we argued from literally coast to coast. Uh, in, I, I can't remember exactly how many circuits. I think we had oral arguments in seven or eight different circuits, ultimately uh, prevailed in the Fifth Circuit uh, when they agreed with our position that liability should be joint and several. Uh, that is, that any one defendant would be obligated to pay Amy the full amount of her losses. And if that defendant then wanted to chase other defendants all over the country and get them to chip in on the, the amount of money the defendant had paid, that would be his obligation. That's the way joint and several ob uh, liability typically works. So we went to the Supreme Court. Uh, it was a divided argument, uh, divided ruling ultimately. Uh, we lost uh, five to four, depending on on how you count up the votes. Uh, um, but interestingly, uh, after that, uh, the, the opinion from the Supreme Court said, look, this is really a legislative matter that the Congress should take up. And so uh, we had uh, my home state senator, Senator Hatch, uh, and uh, New York Senator, Senator Schumer, worked together to put together the Amy, Vicki, and Andy Act, which clarified restitution law and, and put in some of the things that we wanted to make sure victims got, got full restitution. What was significant about that case was not just the restitution issues, uh, which obviously are important to victims, but more broadly, I think this was the first case in which an attorney for a crime victim had argued before the United States Supreme Court in the context of a particular uh, criminal case and tried to assert the victim's right in that particular case. 
And for me, that was a real red letter day because it signified a maturing of the crime victims rights movement to the point where victims lawyers were becoming uh, a part and parcel of criminal cases. Uh, uh, the uh, notion of a three-part criminal justice system, part prosecution, part defense, and part victim, I think became a, a real reality in that case. And so I was very proud to have had uh, uh, a part in, in trying to move victims' rights forward uh, in that way. Well, Professor, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you one final question. And that is, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? So, uh, I mean, I'm assuming your question would allow us to have a discussion in confidence so we could not violate some judicial canon of ethics or something along those lines. And proceeding on that assumption, I'd like to talk to Chief Justice uh, Rehnquist. I always uh, admired him very much. Uh, uh, however, uh, in my Dickerson case that I argued to the U.S. Supreme Court, I lost seven to two when I argued that uh, Congress had overruled uh, Miranda by statute, and Chief Justice Rehnquist famously wrote the majority opinion. Uh, now Senator Ted Cruz uh, has written a law review article where he suggested that the reason uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist did that was to sort of minimize the damage from the Dickerson opinion by writing a very narrow opinion. But I'd like to find out why Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, had to uh, had to write that decision and and wasn't able to bring along uh, Justices O'Connor and Justice uh, Kennedy uh, uh, because it seems to me that the the import of the earlier decisions that Rehnquist, uh, Kennedy, and O'Connor had written they had all signed off or authored opinions saying that Miranda was not a constitutional right; it was simply a prophylactic rule created by Congress. And under that logic, I, I should have won Dickerson. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, I always wanted to know, why did I lose the Dickerson case? And I'm sure Chief Justice Holcroft uh, could fill me in on that. Well, Professor, I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time uh, and to share with us your career and your passion for victims' rights. Thank you. It's great talking to you. And I know uh, uh, Heritage Foundation uh, does a lot of uh, great work there uh, on all kinds of issues. So I wish you uh, success with your work as well. Thank you very much. Likewise. And Amy, you know what time it is? That time where I smoke you in trivia. <laughs> we shall see about that. Well, you, you did well last week. So again, I, I've got to up my game. Little competition going. That's right. That's Bring right. It. What's my theme this week? Your theme this week is foundational history. That is trivia related to the actual building where the Supreme Court sits. Oh, man. John Carlo, I went to law school, not architecture school. <laughs> well, then I guess we're going to see just how much uh, you didn't learn. Excellent. Number one. The court first took up residence in its present building in which year? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so I am vaguely familiar. Like, I can give you a vague time frame. Um, it was pre-World War II, uh, and I think actually during the D Depression era. Um, oh man, okay. I'm just gonna guess a year here, given that general time frame. 1937. Ooh, very close. No! <laughs> it was 1935. Oh man. 
the court was without its own building for the first 145 years of its existence. Oh, starting off with a buzzer. Okay, this hurts. <laughs> for most of the years before that, the court actually met in a couple of different rooms in the Capitol building. I did so, know that. If you haven't taken the Capitol tour and seen the old uh, Supreme Court chambers, uh, it's it's actually quite fascinating. It's like a dark and dreary cave thing they had going on there. All right. Number two. Are you ready? Yep. Which chief justice led the charge to get the court its own building and move it out of the Capitol? <gasps> okay. So I actually do know this one. Um, that was Taft. Chief Justice Taft. William Willie the Wizard Taft. Is that a real nickname? I just made it up. I'm hoping it sticks. Okay. I thought I'd missed something. <laughs> the Supreme Court's present location is not the location originally proposed. Where would the court have been placed had its original proposal been adopted? Oh, um... Um... This, I knew this at one point. Um, it, it, they wanted it. Um, uh, it had something to do with the White House being, being placed with an equidistant proportion to the White House. Um, it, it was down in the Tidal Basin, wasn't it? You are correct. It would have been directly south of the White House, equidistant from the Washington Monument. There, it would have formed part of an isosceles triangle with the White House and the court anchoring the short end and the Capitol joining the long ends. Which would have been really cool because you would have had like the, the three branches of government in this isosceles triangle. Yeah, if you had stood at that on that little knoll where the Washington Monument is located, you could have seen all three branches of government at the same time. Why are we not funding this? <laughs> who, who nixed this idea? You know what? I don't know. How about you look that one up and try to stump me with that trivia next time? Okay. Yep. All right. Number four. Now, this is where your failure to acquire an architecture degree is really going to come back to bite you. Oh, man. Above the main entrance, there is a sculpture of nine allegorical figures uh, created by artist Robert Aitken. The figures include liberty, order, authority, counsel, and research. Aitken gave these figures the faces of several people who were either prominent legal figures or people integral to the creation of the new building. Can you name three of them? Um, so I know two of them. Um, I, I know that John Marshall is up there, and I know that Taft himself is up there. Correct. Um... You said integral to the creation of the new building. Um, my my guess is I, I wouldn't know his name, but the Supreme Court architect, the actual architect of the building, is probably up there. Uh, that is correct. Yes, do I get it even though I don't know the name? You know what? I'm going to give that to you. Actually, okay, that's my three. I'm done. <laughs> his name was Cass Gilbert. Okay, I'm going to immediately forget that. I'm sorry, Mr. Cass Gilbert. <laughs> also on the building. Uh, Who are the other ones? Justice Evan Hughes and the Secretary of State Elihu Root. And in addition, ever the modest man, apparently, Aitken put himself up there. Amy, your final question. 
The court's giant bronze doors depict famous scenes in the development of law. Can you name three of them? Oh, man. Okay, so I've stood in front of these doors a couple of times. Um, and I, it was never with a tour, but I remember I've Googled this because I was interested. Um, and I wish I had paid more attention. I wish I had known that this would come up in a question. Um, because there's like eight or 12 of the eight, 12, something that is a larger equal number. So I, I, one of them had something to do with the Magna Carta. Correct, correct. But you have committed a mistake that the Supreme Court's own website also commits in calling it the Magna Carta. As any good legal nerd will tell you, you don't use the article. Don't tell me. This is America. You will not tell me what to do. <laughs> um, okay, so that's that's one with not the Magna Carta. Um, I the, division, the the development of law. Um, I think Justinian is up there with uh, the Justinian Code. That is correct. Um. I can't remember if this is on the door or if it's in, when you sit in the Supreme Court, they have all of those carvings up um, along the top. So I can't remember if this is on the door or inside, but I'm pretty sure the trial scene from the Iliad with Achilles is somewhere in there. I hope it's on the door. I hope I got that one right. You did. Yes, that's the trial scene that is oh. on Achilles' shield, which is described in the Iliad. Reaching way back into the depths of my brain for that one. Uh, <laughs> that's how many, how many of these was I supposed to try to get? Was it three? Three. Yeah, yeah, you, you've done it. Hey! Uh, for, for our listening uh, audience, I'll fill in the rest. Uh, you also have on the door a Roman praetor publishing an edict. You have a, a, an image of Julian and a pupil of his. You have the chancellor publishing the first statue of Westminster. You, and my favorite one, Lord Coke barring King James from sitting as a judge. Ooh, I never would have gotten that. And then these last two are kind of sneaky because they're not really developments in the law, but they're carvings of Chief Justice Marshall and Justice Story. They put Marshall and Story up there, but not Moses. I know it's kind of strange. Yeah, that would have that would have been my next guess was something with Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments. But uh, so I'm glad I didn't go there. Glad I went with the Phillies. <laughs> uh, Moses is elsewhere in the court. I can't remember if he's on the east arch or if he's inside the courtroom, but he's there. We'll have to take a, a field trip, John Carlo, and and go uh, look at all of this again. Good idea. Well, folks, with that and uh, my successful trivia here, that is our show. Thank you again for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And please, 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 if you love us, leave us that five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. 
Executive produced by Amy Swear and Giancarlo Canaparo. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.